This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 18th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. President Trump heads to Saudi Arabia, Israel, the Vatican, and elsewhere on a decidedly different kind of international trip, where, among other things, he'll promote a massive new arms sale to the Saudis. What may unite the Saudis and Trump, says Cato Research Fellow Emma Ashford, is a habit of making big announcements without much follow-through. What is the best uh, a non-interventionist can hope for with respect to Donald Trump going to visit uh, Saudi Arabia and other countries? Yeah, nothing, nothing very much. We can we can hope that they make a bunch of big announcements that sound really impressive, but they don't actually follow through on them. I think he's going to have the potential for a really good visit in Saudi Arabia. He has so much in common with the Saudi leadership, including that penchant for big announcements that they don't follow through on. Um, but he's also giving, and the, the other thing we should talk about is he's giving a speech on Islam in Saudi Arabia. And it's being written by Stephen Miller, one of his advisors, who is um, charitably Islamophobic. Donald Trump, during the campaign, made a lot of statements about uh, the United States, you know, is shouldering the burden of NATO. Um, he's made statements about Saudi Arabia, essentially getting a bunch of help from the U.S. for free. What is What are we likely to see uh, from uh, as an as an outcome here? Donald Trump seems to have had a bit of a change of heart on particularly Saudi Arabia since he was inaugurated. During the campaign, he did go quite hard on them, basically saying that, you know, the U.S. defends them for free. They should be paying more of their own way. Um, since he was inaugurated, he's been a lot friendlier towards the Saudis, and they have really eagerly seized that opportunity. I think they understood that a lot of traditional U.S. allies um, weren't quick to embrace the new president, and they have sort of rushed in to try and fill that void and, and make him feel like they respect him, want him as president, that they think they can achieve a lot of good things with his administration. So he's been responding very favorably. Um, and this is kind of, I guess, where we see in the Trump administration, personality-driven foreign policy. Okay. So what of this uh, big arms deal? Is this something, uh, is this an example of something that sounds big, but uh, we won't follow through on? The Saudis have been buying increasing numbers of arms from the U.S., uh, even under the Obama administration. Obama approved more arms sales than previous presidents. Um, but this would be a package worth perhaps as much as $300, $350 billion over a decade. It is massive. Um, and so in part, this is the Saudis saying, well, we hear your complaints that we don't pay enough of our own way, so we'll buy a lot more of your weapons. Um, and in part, this is being driven by the Saudis having a more more assertive foreign policy. Uh, the second part of this announcement that we hear is going to be made in Riyadh on, on the president's trip is that they're going to talk about setting up uh, an Arab NATO. And this is an idea that has come up a bunch of times. It has never worked out because the political realities on the ground, disagreements between the states involved are, are just too big to actually solve. But this is part of the Saudis saying to the Trump administration, look, we're, you know, we're trying to take more responsibility and become regional leaders even if they don't actually follow through on it. So what has been the result so far of this um, Islamic alliance that we heard so much about for a very brief period of time? That's a great question because there are a couple of analogs to an Arab NATO and this Islamic alliance to fight terrorism was one of them. It was announced uh, December, I think, 2015, so, so just over a year, year and a half ago. 
Um, and basically, that was the Saudis saying, well, we're going to get together uh, an alliance of Sunni Muslim states who are opposed to ISIS and al-Qaeda, and we'll you know, try and do more to fight terrorism. Nothing has really come of it. Uh, some of those members were involved in the campaign in Yemen. Some of them have given arms in Syria. But it's not really gone anywhere from an organizational standpoint. And there are other examples. Uh, the, the Gulf Cooperation Council uh, between Saudi Arabia and some of the other Gulf states has been really effective in its sort of economic cooperation, political cooperation to some extent. But they've never managed to get together militarily the way they planned to do. Um, even CENTO, sometimes known as the Baghdad Pact, that came about at the height of the Cold War, uh, that failed too. We've basically just never seen these states being able to put aside their differences and come together militarily. Is that what we should expect from a, an Arab NATO? I think so. Um, to some extent, the Saudis and Donald Trump actually share some real similarities in how they approach uh, policy making. So in particular, they both share a penchant for policies that sound really great and you announce them with big fanfare and then there's not much in the way of follow through. And so I suspect that this Arab NATO will be just another such example. It'll be announced with much fanfare, um, but we won't really hear about how it doesn't pan out. Is there any effort? I know that uh, one of the few things that Donald Trump said in the campaign trail that I liked was, uh, let's make North Korea China's problem. Is there a sense that we can effectively make these uh, regional fights in Syria and uh, in that region their problem? Here's the thing that should give you pause. Uh, when Obama was in office, the Saudis were extremely upset at his administration. They didn't get along with the White House at all. And in part, that's because Obama said, well, the Saudis will have to start doing more and step up to lead the region, um, and they're going to have to manage some of these problems. And so the Saudis were very upset and didn't like that at all. They are thrilled about Donald Trump as president. And that's not because he's going to put more of the burden on them. In fact, one of the things that the Saudis are really happy about, as far as we can tell, is that Donald Trump seems to be willing to take a much more assertive approach towards Iran in the region, something the Obama administration wasn't willing to do. Where else is the president going? And do you expect any specific benefits from uh, those meetings? After Saudi Arabia, and, and I think I should note here, this is a very unusual first trip for a president. Most presidents opt for Canada, which is a very safe, friendly environment. But Donald Trump has chosen to go to Saudi Arabia, uh, which has the two holiest sites in Islam. Then he's going on to Israel. Then he's going to the Vatican before winding up the trip at a NATO summit in Brussels. Um, and all of this, I think, has been designed to look very impressive for the TV cameras. Uh, but given sort of the domestic political turmoil at home, I really think it's unlikely that he's going to get a lot of good press from this. What are we likely to expect from a, uh, a speech on Islam from the president of the United States written by Stephen Miller, who's uh, most famous for sort of having very terse run-ins with uh, members of the media? Yeah. And Stephen Miller also has a history with uh, agitating against what he describes as Islamo-fascism. When he was in college, he tried to set up awareness weeks to raise the awareness of Islamo-fascism. Um, he's also the author of the administration's travel ban that has often been described as a, as a Muslim travel ban, even by Donald Trump during the campaign. So this is not a man that is a, a scholar 
of Islam um, and his own attitudes towards the religion are somewhat concerning. Um, when you add into that the fact that Donald Trump is known for making off-the-cuff remarks, there's a very real potential that this speech offends a lot of people in the Middle East. Um, but their governments have obviously made the judgment that they gain more from a close relationship with this White House than they stand to lose from, say, the public in their countries being offended by this speech. So I, I think we'll see at the end of this visit whether they, they judge that to be right. Emma Ashford is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 